Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. Spring has sprung in North America, and as part of the season, we observe many things. Flowers blooming, rain and kids splashing in puddles, and birds chirping as many of them return from their winter vacation in the Southern Hemisphere. With the return of these migrating birds, however, we also see some predictable waves of poultry infections with influenza. And each year there is the potential for different strains of this flu to impact the health of our egg and meat producing birds, whether they're raised in small backyard flocks or in commercial poultry production systems. It can be overwhelming and seem impossible to try and minimize the chances of an infection like influenza. Diseases that are shared with wildlife populations can be tricky to manage. Luckily, there's a number of things producers can do to help protect their flocks, whether they're small or large. And there are changes that can occur within industry to help minimize disease impacts and prevent disease spread. A key point, taking the time and spending a bit of money to have these measures in place before an infection occurs will be the best decision in the long run. Dr. Jean-Pierre Vaillancourt, a veterinarian epidemiologist and professor of veterinary medicine at the University of Montreal, is an expert in poultry health and biosecurity, and he focuses on developing strategies to help control the risk of infection with diseases such as avian influenza. His work takes him all around the globe, and he's helped producers and governments develop plans for regional biosecurity approaches that have significantly increased poultry health. He's also done a lot of very interesting work into the social and personality traits of humans and how these can affect the success of biosecurity plans on farm. I'm pleased to speak with Dr. Vaillancourt today on Animal Health Insights. Dr. Vaillancourt, thanks for joining me today. Nice to be with you. First off, just so everyone listening is on the same page, could you please tell me a bit about avian influenza and how it infects and affects poultry? Well, the avian influenza virus is a, what we call an enveloped RNA virus. So it's a virus that's got a, a, a fat layer around. So it's easy to destroy it with soap and water, for example. It's not that resistant if it's left on its own on the surface. But it's an RNA virus. And like many of these viruses, it makes mistakes sometimes when it replicates. And when it does that, sometimes it will create new strains with different capabilities. So that's kind of a problem. And if you have organic material, whether it's cool, uh, it's humid, then the virus can stick around for a long time. The breeders uh, can transmit it to their progeny, but the virus will systematically kill the embryo. So we don't talk about vertical transmission per se. It's more like horizontal transmission. So it will be direct contact or indirect contact via fomites, via, via any kind of equipment, material, bedding that may be contaminated. That's how the virus will eventually get to birds. And when it gets to a bird, uh, it will depend on the species and the strain of the virus. Because, you know, sometimes it will not touch at all a specific type of bird, like a duck, a goose, or some other more like local birds that we may have even in town. It varies a lot. But when you have clinical signs, it will be sometimes respiratory signs like coughing, enteric signs, diarrhea, 
right now with the H5N1 that we have in Canada, that's been in Europe as well. It provides a fairly liquid diarrhea. And then you may get nervous signs. If you get to that point, usually the bird cannot recover. And so most of the birds will get sick and you can have a lot of a very high mortality. Uh, when it's high pap, a highly pathogenic avian influenza, you can reach virtually 100% mortality in a flock. And like any influenza strain, there is some potential for people or other animals to be infected with this virus. Could you provide some background on the different strains of influenza and why we get concerned about some strains more than others in a One Health context? You know, the avian influenza virus, the main reservoir is in waterfowl migratory birds. And essentially, it has at the surface of the virus, you'll get some extensions called, you know, H and N, and you have 16H and 9N possible. All the combinations are possible in these migratory birds, in all the birds that we can see. Now, from that point, we are mainly concerned about H5 and H7 because these are the viruses that can become highly pathogenic. So in terms of looking at the birds, if it's H5 or H7, even if it's low path at first, we're really concerned when we get that. Now, that being said, you can have an H1 or an H3 that could affect turkeys, for example, and our breeders. Uh, so it's not limited to H5 or H7, but we're really paying attention when we have these two strains, main categories of the virus. Now, when it comes to humans, because a lot of animals can be infected as well, it varies a lot according to the strain. But when it comes to humans, I mean, in history, the vast majority of these uh, avian influenza viruses do not affect people. Sometimes it will. And when it does, for the most part, you'll get conjunctivitis, for example. Uh, it's going to be very limited. Right now, with the H5N1, so far, we have only one human case of infection being confirmed. But the individual does not have any clinical signs. So that's often what we see. Occasionally, you're going to get more serious problems in humans. Good examples would be the H1N1 that happened in 1918, 1919, the, the famous uh, Spanish flu. That killed a lot of people. More recently, late 90s, we had another H5N1, a cousin of the one we have right now, but not the same. And that one has killed several and actually has the ability to hit more uh, younger people because it's triggering a cytokine storm. So you have the H5N1 in Asia right now. It will create, we think, a cytokine storm. And so the more your immune system is strong, the bigger the reaction. And so in this particular case, you have younger people dying from that particular avian influenza. Uh, well, at the same time, the, you know, you may have like a teenager, an 11-year-old uh, or a 15-year-old person that dying while their grandparents are taking care of them because they may get infected, but, but they will survive. Now, you have uh, uh, other viruses right now in Asia that will go the other way around and will normally 
affect more older people. So that's a big thing is we, depending on the strain, will have different clinical expression in humans and other species. But when it comes to One Health, one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these viruses, if they affect a lot of domestic birds, they may have a tremendous impact on the uh, rural economy. And basically, what you start seeing is people who lose their jobs. They uh, go into bankruptcies. They get extremely stressed and some will get severe depression. We've seen in some circumstances people breaking up and, and even suicides. So that's quite extreme. It's not that we see a lot of that, but the impact on the uh, community where the problem is located can be quite massive. And it, it takes a lot of time to recover from this kind of situation. And we should not be focusing only on what the virus can do directly to humans, but what the virus can do to the social economic environment where it hits. Yeah, that's that's a pretty important component for sure with any disease outbreak that we see in agriculture. Can you tell me how these different strains of influenza then move around the globe and into a poultry farm? I've always found it really tricky to fathom how the disease gets from a wild migrating bird to a chicken or a turkey inside a commercial poultry operation. Actually, there's different options. As I mentioned, the uh, migratory birds are the reservoir. They will seed the place. It could be a pond, could be around a farm. And so you could have directly a contamination because it's in the droppings. The birds that are contaminated, are infected, they will produce viral particles in and their droppings, and that's how they contaminate the environment. And so people may walk and contaminate their boots and then bring this in directly. Another thing that happens over time is as these birds contaminate the environment, more local birds, in some cases, it can be a sparrow. It doesn't have to be like a wild duck or geese then they can bring this within a farm. If they can have access to the inside of a building where you have the barn, where you have the birds. Now, at the same time, the contamination, if it gets dry, the virus is still active, you have dust. So because people are wondering, I had a, a grower saying, well, I have egg layers, they are in cages. Even if I have contaminated boots, how can it reach my birds? Well, you know, your boots have organic material. It may dry up a bit. You have dust, the air movement and all that can contribute to bring the virus to the birds. You can have rodents that would get in, become mechanical vectors, basically uh, get the virus on them and they'll walk and help contaminate the environment. Basically, it can be airborne, not for long distances. We're not talking kilometers here. Uh, we have research evidence showing that up to at least 70 meters, if you have contamination inside a building and you have fans basically throwing air out, you're going to find a virus at least up to 70 meters away. So for short distances, maybe hundreds of meters, you may have this kind of airborne uh, contamination. Sometimes it's just because the virus is on dust particles and then can be carried over. But 
for the most part, what we have here is a virus that will uh, take advantage of people's boots, hands, equipment, bedding. You can have a bird that will defecate on the straw that's kept outside, not protected. And basically, people move that in uh, as bedding for the birds, and that's how contamination may occur. So since these avian influenza infection risks are so closely linked to the migration patterns of wild birds, are we seeing changes in these patterns that can be due to climate change? Well, actually, we think so, because we see changes in the behavior and uh, movement of migratory birds that are the reservoir for the disease. So a lot of the nesting areas are in the north of Russia, for example. And there you have different ecosystems and you have different species of birds that traditionally did not connect, did not meet. But with climate change, we've seen more and more of these these ecosystems basically connecting and different birds being in close contact with one another. And they bring in their own microbes, essentially microbiote. And when they connect like that, they share these pathogens. And that helps create new strains of avian influenza because you can have a reassortment, recombination from two viruses that end up in the same cell for a given bird. That's how these strains very often, you can have mutation, but it's often this reality of two different strains of avian influenza connecting and producing more or less a new strain that's an issue. Climate change has contributed to that. It's contributing also to where the birds go. So sometimes we have birds ending up where we never saw them before. Recently, we had the problem with some wild geese that uh, are usually found in Europe and not in Canada, but they ended up in Newfoundland. And because we had just prior to that some major climate event with major winds favoring the move of these birds all the way to North America. And with a strain that would get the birds sick, but with an incubation period that could be quite long, several days. And so that has allowed basically infected birds to make it all the way to Canada and then shedding the virus before they actually get sick. We didn't see that as much, for example, with with H5N8, another uh, high-path AI that they had in Europe, because the birds would get sick very, very quickly. They had no time to actually cross to go pretty much anywhere. So that's kind of a new reality. And sometimes with climate change, as you know, you have catastrophic climate situations with a lot of flooding or things like that, or very cold temperature in the wrong time of the year. And these birds, what they do, they adjust and they may take refuge in an area where they were not found before. And that's when they can seed the area, the zone, with any kind of pathogens that they may uh, have as carriers. So in that sense, climate change has had an impact. And I would say we've noticed an increase in the number of outbreaks or epidemics worldwide, going back to about 2000, where it slowly started going up. 2004, we had more than 2000. 2014-15 was a big period 
where we thought, wow, we just hit something quite high in terms of number of outbreaks and different epidemics in the world, but nothing like 2020-21. So it's almost exponential, the number of outbreaks that we see with HiPath AI over the past several years, since 2015, for sure. We've seen things we've never seen before, even including domestic birds or flocks being infected by two different, completely different strains of HiPath AI. This is not something that we reported on, you know, 20 years ago. So what is the role of climate change? The way I describe it, certainly it has contributed, plus other factors like the development of the industry, development, emergence of new productions of backyard flocks. The backyard flocks are not a major risk if there's no epidemiological link with commercial uh, farms. But the more we have production sites and the more we have these uh, activities, then the greater the risk. I know you've seen and learned about a lot of different poultry production settings in your work around the world. Given your experience, what are the steps that producers should take that would be most effective at preventing diseases like avian influenza? It will depend on the type of farm. If you have a farm that has uh, birds outside, well, the first thing is, is to make sure that there's no feed and no water for the birds outside. That is something that should be kept inside. Now, if you have this piece of land where the birds can go out, it has to be designed in some way that if there's rain, you won't get puddles. You won't get stagnant water there because that will attract wild birds. You also may want to have part of that land covered with a loose net, essentially nothing solid. If you have, for example, and we see that sometimes with backyard flocks, they will have like almost like a cage. If it's a very solid structure, then wild birds will go and, and land there. And that's really bad as far as increasing the risk of contamination. But if it's a very loose net, uh, then the, of course the wild birds are not going to get there. They're going to avoid more the place. And uh, remarkably, domestic birds kind of have a sense that they're more protected if there's a net like that even if it's a very fine one, and they will tend to go outside but stay under that net. So that can be very useful. So if you have these farms with birds outside, that's the minimal thing to do. The other thing is if you have like ducks, and with ducks, we need to add bedding every day, okay? And so if you have that need and you have, let's say, wood chips or, or straw, kept somewhere else and you need to bring that in. Well, before it's moved in, it has to always be kept where it's protected from wildlife because then you avoid contamination so that you don't move the virus with that bedding. And then you have the basic biosecurity measures. The key one is to change boots and do it correctly. What we often see on a farm is that a grower will either change boots or put on plastic boots. But the way often the person will do it is by stepping back exactly where they were. So if you have boots that are not contaminated, but your own boots are contaminated, you remove your boots, or if you don't remove your boots and you put plastic boots, and then you, you put your foot down exactly where it was, well, now you contaminated that plastic boot that you were putting on to avoid contamination. So it's important to do that boot change 
as we go from one area in the enter room to the other area, from what do we call the outside or potentially contaminated area and the clean or the flock side area. That is if we have just two zones. Ideally, if you can have three zones, that that's great. And they call that a Danish type entrance. And so because it's great because you have this transition zone between the two. And also it's because that's where you want to wash your hands. Uh, one key thing is that before you touch anything that will go on the side where the birds are, you want to decontaminate your hands. You don't do that and then touch, let's say, the boots you use coming in or your shoes. You want to wash your hands just before you put on coveralls, for example, because that's another important thing is you use coveralls. But you put that on, you put the shoes or the boots from the bird side uh, but you need to have clean hands. Very often on a farm, we'll see like a Purell, a colic gel type dispenser just at the door before you get access to the birds. But if you decontaminate your hands only at that point, you're a bit too late. So changing boots, not using foot baths. Foot baths are worthless, okay, for a couple of reasons. First, we know they don't work with avian influenza because research has been done on this and using uh, good products, good disinfectants, but within a couple of hours, the solution will not be effective. And so, and you're not going to change that all the time. That's the first problem. The second one is that very often when people use foot baths, they don't put them in the right place. If you would have one, it would have to be allowing you to go from one zone to the next. Very often they'll put that in a corner where you, if you step in that foot bath, then you have to step back to where you were, which is also a problem. So for people who really would like to keep a foot bath because they've always done it, what we recommend is that they use more like a dry bleach product. So it's more like a white powder. And that is much more effective has been shown to reduce by about 100 times the degree of contamination. And the nice thing is you don't have to change that daily. You can change, change that every other week. So if you need to have some kind of foot bath, that's the way to go. Now, another thing is you don't want to share equipment. Very often, that's a problem we see. People, growers will have a piece of equipment that may cost a lot of money, so they share it. Well, certainly right now with the current situation we have with H5N1, that's not a good idea. And if you would have to share some equipment, a piece of equipment, then what you would have to do is wash and disinfect it before it leaves the farm of origin. And once it gets to the farm where it's going to be used, then it would have to be washed and disinfected again. So that's something you have to do. The last thing is, you should only have visitors that need to get to the farm. This is no time right now to do a show and tell with a group of kids, for example. The only essential visitors uh, should have access to farms, and then they need to be supervised. They, we need to check to make sure that they do things properly. I know that Danish entry systems or the three-step entry that may not be widely implemented in some production settings or on some farms... What would be the costs associated with implementing some of these steps you've mentioned on farm compared to the cost of a disease outbreak? Has anybody looked into these comparisons? There's not a lot of work looking at the uh, cost-benefit 
But every time it's been done, we've had a ratio of one to three to one to seven. For example, for every dollar spent on biosecurity, you would get three to seven dollars back over time. The problem, of course, is if you have a person, a farmer, and he's had no problem, and we ask him to implement several things, new things. Well, the argument is, well, how do I know this is helping me? Because I haven't had major problems. And if you prevent something, you don't really know it, right? Are you really preventing it or you were never really at risk? And that's, that's a problem. But what we can tell growers is, first of all, wherever we looked at it, it's been beneficial economically, one. Two, if you get a major problem like avian influenza, you look at the 2004 problem in BC, where we had to uh, destroy like 17 million birds, and it cost over $400 million. You look at the French right now, before they got this major epidemic with over a thousand infected farms, they had already spent over 1 billion euros. And the cost of decontaminating a farm in 2004, that was like around $70,000. So you can imagine today, because if you are hit by this kind of disease, you just don't depopulate, wait a bit and do a, a normal cleaning and disinfection that you might do between two flocks normally. It goes way beyond that. And it is supervised by CFIA. So it has to be extremely well done. It's extremely costly. And so what we tell growers is that, look, these basic measures, the ones I just mentioned, the good news is that they work for other diseases than avian influenza. Like right now in Canada, we have cases on the, in domestic farms, but it's extremely rare. Last time we got that was in 2015. And before that was like 2007 to 2004. And when you look at the number of farms that we've had infected with this kind of catastrophic condition, compared to the number of flocks we've been producing over the decades, well, it's, it's really not much. And so sometimes people have a hard time to be motivated, saying, well, you know, uh, you want me to, uh, to try to prevent a disease that I haven't seen in 30 years myself. I've been in business for 30 years, 40 years. And what it's telling me, I may see it one day. So what we do is that we tell growers, well, you may see mycoplasma galaceptacum. You've seen possibly laryngotracheitis, infectious laryngotracheitis, bronchitis, lentogenic Newcastle, gumboro disease. There's a lot of conditions that can be prevented by applying the basic biosecurity measures that we are recommending to prevent AI from getting into a farm. In some of your studies, you've looked at some human factors that do affect the success of biosecurity measures. What are some of these social science hurdles then that the poultry industry needs to consider when they're planning their disease management strategies? For starter, we need to recognize that whatever we do, we have a basic human nature to try to avoid what we don't like, to try to get around any kind of rules or regulations that may be perceived as making our life more difficult. And so that particular thing is an issue for whatever type of animal production or company. But it's a, a serious consideration. First of all, we need to realize that and to know that if you want people to accept what is required, they need to, to buy into it. 
We need to realize that the people we have working on farms that have to be trained to do things right, they're not kids. You cannot just tell them what to do and that's it. A lot of these people, they're all adults, and they basically have already experience, life experience. And so if you ask them to do something that's different from what they've done before, they really need to understand why that is being required so that they can accept it. So we need to be very careful about that. Another thing that the industry needs to keep in mind is that whatever our background, our culture, human beings have eight desires. Okay, I've got a list here, a, a desire of activity, of ownership, of power, of affiliation, of competence, achievement, meaning, and recognition. It doesn't matter who we are. We could be in Sri Lanka somewhere, in Nepal, in Toronto, doesn't matter. We have all these desires. And we need to use that in a way. This desire for ownership, when I talk about buy-in, if we have biosecurity measures, we need to look at it like as an expert in biosecurity, I will never go on a farm and then tell the grower and the employees, all right, this is what you're going to do, okay? Because their reaction was like, yeah, right, you know, once you're done, please get out and, and we'll move on and do our stuff. They need to be the one coming up with the solutions. So what the industry needs to do is realize where the risks are. Look on each site, regions, what are the risks? And we kind of know these risks. And then we need to get the people who are working there on a daily basis to realize this and then come up with solutions. We basically already know the solutions, but this is a case where the expression reinventing the wheel is a good thing. On each site, you need to have a plan that's put together by the people who are there so that they have some buy-in. So that's because it's one of the desires we want to, to own. In this case, what we have to do on a daily basis. Competence is knowledge. So they need some training. Again, they're adults, so they need to know why they're being asked uh, to do something. Uh, recognition, you know, this is something that does not have to mean money. Okay. There's a company at one point, they had an employee that came up with something really cool. And the manager was so impressed and he wanted to reward the employee right away. <laughs> All he had was his lunch. And so he had a banana and he gave the banana to the employee. Of course, the employee found that pretty weird. But then they used that to create the Golden Banana Award, which is a recognition that they have monthly for the employee who comes up with or performs in a way that deserves recognition. That does not cost money, but that, that recognition is paramount to get people motivated. I used to have the director of my PhD was known worldwide for his ability to get people fired up. He would go on a farm and tell people how impressed he was with what they were doing. And the reaction, and I saw it myself, is people would say, well, he's impressed now. Wait till he comes back. We'll do even better. We need to look at these human desires because the nice thing is they're not connected to a particular culture. You know, sometimes we have employees coming from Guatemala, Mexico, or other places 
but they have the same basic desires. So psychologically and all that, all the industry needs to pay attention to this because it's a human game. Yes, it's such an important factor to consider. You know, we all bring that human context to our work and everything we do. I'm going to switch tacks here a little bit and discuss what we might do in the case where we've already got a touchdown of avian influenza in a certain region. So we've discussed some of the preventative measures that we could take on farm. But when we know that we've got avian influenza locally, or in the case that a particular farm is diagnosed with this infection, what steps can be taken on an individual farm to control the disease and prevent a larger outbreak? It would be very good if each farmer would have the contact information about who to call if there's a suspicion. And here the key thing is to uh, declare quickly if there's a suspicion. When I was in North Carolina, they had a system in place and nine times out of 10, it was a false alarm. And the industry loved it this way. They always told the growers, the farmers, look, in case of suspicion, we'll keep it within us, okay? We're not going to make a big fuss, but do call this person within the company. They have integrated companies there. But, and they had a system to call the uh, Secretary of Agriculture so that they would quickly be able to react and start putting things in place. Now, the grower, the farmer himself or herself, needs to be ready to do a, a self-quarantine because all movements have to stop, okay? If birds were supposed to uh, go to slaughter that day, that evening, now is not the time. You can wait a day. We need to make sure that we have or not this particular infection. People movement, equipment movement, bringing anything in, all that has to stop. And the last thing is, once a grower has a suspicion, calls to get something going within the industry, uh, with the veterinarians and, and possibly local and federal government, I mean, all of that can be done in the background to get things to move quicker, then the grower really needs to start thinking about over the past several days, who came in? What could have contributed to the contamination, the infection of my flock, if it's real? And also over the past few days, where did I go? What did I move from my farm elsewhere? So we're talking tracing back and tracing forward, essentially, for several days. Typically, they look back 21 days. But I would say is the, the last 10 days to two weeks, it's very important to get that information so that people in the industry can inform the right individuals. It can be a rendering truck, a feed truck, a truck that came in with new litter material, technicians that came, vaccination crews, all of these individuals you know, it's an industry on wheels, so it moves around, so they need to be informed. So the quicker you can do that, the more likely you're going to avoid a spread uh, to many other farms. And then are there steps that can be taken by the producer groups for a region that could help to control an outbreak? Have you seen any particular strategies be successful when implemented by the industry groups? Yeah, because, you know, the industry groups... They are at another level. They're looking at the big picture. They have access to the big picture. And what's great, when you have a suspicion, the people in charge 
are still the grower and the grower associations, not the federal government. Once you have confirmation on a site, then yes, CFIA is going to be responsible and will call the shots. But between the suspicion and when that happens, you may have several hours, sometimes a few days. And during that time, not only the grower, but the industry, the grower associations can do a lot. And so what they need first to have is an up-to-date GPS of all the farms with all the coordinates of, of everybody, okay? Who's got farms in the region, where they are, what type of operation, egg layers, breeders, meat birds, multi-age or not, all that, the amount, the, the, you know, how many uh, birds, how many uh, buildings, that kind of stuff. The industry can look and map out and say, if we had to destroy on this site, for example, or that site, can we bury on site or not? For example, we may not be able to do it because of the water table does not allow it. So to, in time of peace, prepare like that, have a plan, get a team together. It's not a team that's like uh, firefighters waiting for something to happen. They're people from industry, but get people from industry to be trained so that they can intervene if there is basically an outbreak somewhere. They can contribute to help and they can help in different ways. For example, in Ontario and Quebec, they are set up so that if there is a suspicion somewhere, and they're doing tests and the federal government comes in to take some samples and to start asking questions to the grower, well, they can have somebody come in to help the grower with the daily task because the birds are still going on. There's still activities on the farm, but now the grower is being mobilized to handle the situation. So if there's a need to check out, to see the feed or whatever, then they can bring somebody to assist. They can even bring in somebody for psychological type assistance because of the stresses involved. So the, the industry can do a lot of things like that. Also come up with agreements. I know, for example, in Ontario years ago, one organization sent a letter to their growers saying, look, confidentiality is important. But if we think we have that particular problem, now's the time to talk to the right people. So if we have this specific situation of a serious suspicion of hyperavian influenza, for example, we want you to grant us the opportunity to transfer some information about your site to proper authorities so that we can move faster. And then they ask them to sign that letter. So you don't need to change confidentiality laws. You can just adapt and say, okay, we have that on file. So if you have a suspicion, we already have the okay from the growers to share key information. So the industry can do all these things. They can also plan for zoning. For example, in Ontario, you have feed mills that have been talking, saying, well, if we are in a zone where we have the problem, we may not be able to move our trucks, our feed elsewhere. But then where that zone, contaminated zone or infected zone set up by the government, maybe then we can feed everybody else within that zone so that we don't have to go outside the zone. And then they have agreements on the kind of rations 
that would then be automatically created uh, so that you can feed during the period where you're trying to contain the situation. So there's a lot of stuff like that that can be uh, put in place and tested. What I mean by that is that simulations are a good thing for two reasons. First of all, when you have a very specific situation on a specific farm, you're going to have specific issues. And so it's testing the plan. You can have a a plan that looks good on paper, but once you put it uh, to the test of of the reality of the field, you may realize that "Mm, you didn't plan for, you know, cows to be around the barns or whatever. So you need to look at a specific test that, test the communication. How easy is it to communicate with everybody if we have a suspicion? So that's very important. Uh, Do we have the right phone numbers and all that? There's the reality that over time, people change jobs, retire, uh, move on. And because of that, you constantly need to keep up to date a communication list of key players so that if you have a suspicion and you need to, to trigger something to contain the disease, well, you need to be able to reach the right people right away. So testing that, making sure that uh, another thing that some grower organizations have done uh, in the United States, we've seen it, they've decided to put some money aside so that they are in a position to make decisions faster than the government. Because obviously, when you have high path AI and the government will order the destruction of a flock, well, they will pay for the live birds that are being euthanized. That's part of regulations, laws that are in place. But if the industry is, is in a position to say, look, this looks so bad, we're going to do it right now because we've got some money put aside to trigger that without waiting for formal approval by the government. You might be able to go from just having one or two outbreaks and keep it there compared to waiting for all the authorizations and all the process to go on. And by that time, you may have 10 or 15 farms contaminated. So individual farmers cannot do that, but grower associations can put in place all these different strategies and funds and communication lists so that they can act faster. That's the key. The faster you can react to this disease, the quicker you can stop movement of anything that could help spread the virus, the better you're going to be and the smaller the epidemic. You've mentioned a few times some of the mental health impacts that can be seen with outbreaks of disease such as avian influenza. There can be a real stigma or a blame game within communities that could significantly affect the mental health of producers and families who are really already dealing with quite a bit of strain associated with the loss of a flock and an outbreak. Have you observed any particularly effective mental health care programs or strategies that should be considered to help support farm families who are dealing with a disease outbreak situation? Well, yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. We learned a lot from the BC H7N3 outbreak epidemic in 2004. We learned that you need to have psychological type assistance right away to growers that are affected. We learned that the blame game starts with the grower himself or herself, who will feel terrible knowing mainly if they are the first one being identified. 
They may not be the index case, but they're the first one being reported. And that's a huge issue. They feel terrible about it themselves. And then we've seen, for example, kids at school where, you know, from kids from growers who don't have the problem may start going after the kids of the grower that has the disease on its farm. And so we really need, in terms of the community, to pay attention to this. So if you're in a rural area and you know you may have that situation, then there needs to be potentially an intervention, places like schools like this. But for the grower directly, that's for sure. And one thing too is the long-term follow-up. You may have an outbreak that would last a few weeks, even a few months. But even if it just lasts like two or three months, to recover fully, just economically, the production and all that, you need two years for the most part. And so the pain and the problems are not just short term. And we've learned also from outbreaks, not only with HiPath AI, we look, for example, in England, when they had foot and mouth disease, we had growers, for example, who had sheep. There was a story of a grower who was born on a sheep farm and all his life had sheep around the house. And so day and night, you would hear these animals, but it helped him fall asleep in a way, literally. And that that was part of his life. And they had to kill all these sheep because of uh, foot and mouth. He could not handle the silence. He eventually committed suicide. And that did not happen right away, okay, down the road. So any program, once you have a serious situation in a region has to not only focus on the immediate needs, but also the long-term needs of people that will be affected. So with the benefit then of your training and your multiple experiences in disease management and epidemiology for poultry, can you tell me what your wish list is? So what do you wish that the Canadian poultry sector could implement in order to decrease disease impacts? whether it be for individual producers in commercial or small flock operations, for industry groups, for poultry veterinarians, or for government? What can we do to improve health outcomes? I would say for individual producers, whether it's a commercial or a small flock, even backyard flock type setup, I wish that every producer will have a hard look at the site where they produce and say, okay, I know the basic biosecurity measures. Now, how can I apply this in the most simple way? You need to keep it simple. If it's complicated to do something, we'll drop doing it eventually. We need to have a setup. For example, if we have an empty room, well, you need enough space so that you can do what is required easily. If you need to be uh, trained by the Cirque du Soleil to put on things while doing all sorts of movement, I mean, that won't work. You need to have easy access to the material needed. You need to have an easy way to put things on. I was at a, a meeting in Vancouver recently where one famous veterinarian came to me. And this man is pushing 80. He's still going to meetings. And he was saying, you know, for example, how about having a bench to separate two zones, you know, so that I can sit down and put the boots without too much problems and remove my boots first and then put on the boots from the farms. Because I, I'm too old now. I can no longer just, you know, be on one leg and do all these things. So you need to look at how can we 
apply the, the most basic measures and make sure it's done consistently. That's the key, okay? It's not very difficult. We know what works, but it has to be done all the time. So that requires some training for any kind of employees. If you have a farm with employees, they really need to have access to the proper training. And if you have any visitors, these growers need to monitor these people and make sure that they do things right per se. But as I said, at first, they just need to look around and say, okay, where are my risks? Because we already have a list. I'll give you an example. If for dead bird disposal, you're using rendering, well, you need to look at how it's being done. The company that does that will go to up to 40 farms during a day to pick up dead birds. So it's not a good idea to have the dead bird container close to the barns or on the production site. So where can we put that container? And then we need to look at if we get there, we put the birds in a container, we're in an area with contamination because the rendering truck comes in. They have no choice by just coming in. There's a great likelihood that they may contaminate the area just around the dead bird disposal place because the renderer will never usually go inside where the birds are. You know, as we say, it takes two to tango. Well, the renderer could be a source of contamination right where he picks up the dead birds. But for any kind of pathogens, infectious pathogens, to make it to where the birds are, well, the grower needs to do that. So that's by not changing boots properly and not decontaminating anything that may get to the birds once he or she has been where the rendering container is. So we need to just take time to look at these specific risks that we may have and say, okay, how can I, in the easiest way possible, make sure that I can break that chain of infection? So that's for individual producers. For industry, the industry's responsibility is to support producers uh, with like training opportunities, stuff like that. Get organized. You know, I mentioned about being able to communicate have a GPS coordinates of everybody, basically also offer an opportunity for regional biosecurity. So what that is that it's easier when you have integrated companies, I suppose, because if you just have two or three, they can talk to one another, but you don't need to be integrated. It can be in a region where key information will be provided so that the feed truck will travel while avoiding some areas that could be problematic, for example, going from A to B. If we're moving live birds, finding ways to avoid passing by uh, close to a site that has birds that are at risk if the birds were moving towards Lettuce Slaughter Plant, for example, are infected. So there are ways that the uh, producer organizations can help have a plan in case of suspicion and, and just try and, as I said, have simulations. And basically try to look at the regional level ahead of time. What could we do to eventually better control the poultry traffic? Now, you cannot control the regular traffic. You cannot easily stop traffic on a road, for example. Depending on the city or the region, there's all sorts of requirements and telling people way ahead of time that it's going to be done and all these things. When you have a crisis, you cannot do that. But you can control poultry traffic if you are organized, if you can communicate effectively. So I think industry has got a lot to do there. Poultry vets? Well, poultry vets 
need to be leaders in different ways. They need to lead by how they act, okay? Poultry vets, they need to, to do things right. They need to look at themselves as people that everybody will look at saying, well, if the vet does it this way, then it's acceptable. So they need to be very careful about this. They need to also make sure they know how to diagnose important diseases. Normally, if they're competent, that's not an issue. But, you know, sometimes when you have a virus like avian influenza, depending on the strain, may have a different clinical presentation. And so the vets need to be really alert and realize if they are facing a situation that may be something like avian influenza. So they need to focus on that. They need to be able to offer training recommendations and being able to work with the grower again, so that the grower can come up with the solution. Because as I said, it's good if a veterinarian knows exactly how to prevent disease, but he or she cannot just expect that by saying so, it's going to be done. The vets also have a relationship with growers. They need to use that to make sure that they can benefit the industry by being in contact and making sure that growers are aware, for example, in a particular region that there's a higher risk, things like that. And they should also look at innovation. Vets are responsible not only for infectious but non-infectious diseases, but looking at ways to prevent them, to minimize them. And so it's their responsibility to really look at any kind of innovation that we may have out there that could benefit the industry. I think that that's their duty. As for the government, I would say the government, the first thing I would like to see, whether it's the provincial or federal government, is that they have true poultry experts on board. We have that right now at CFIA. There are a couple of vets I know who are like board certified American College of Poultry Veterinarians. They are really good at what they do. And so they have credibility. Historically, it's been an issue. I remember in the United States where you would have avian influenza and most of the vets from USDA coming in historically would actually have like a dairy beef cattle background. Well, it's not that they were bad at it, but they really had little experience with poultry, it showed. And there was an issue of credibility there. So I would hope that whatever the government level, there's at least one or two key experts there. Does not have to be a, a vet when you think about it, because we're not going to be prescribing. But it has to be a poultry expert that is recognized by the industry. Also, I would expect them to want to work with industry. If the industry is trying to get prepared, they need to be willing to train with them, to collaborate with them, exchange with them, and even come up with some agreements. I know it's been done in Ontario when we're doing it in Quebec, where uh, in times of peace, they are looking at, all right, if we do have this particular scenario, are you guys willing to help us? Yeah, these resources are not that kind of stuff so that they get prepared. Well, they need to do that with industry and with the two different main levels of, of government. And that includes if there's a simulation by industry, for example, they need to be there. They need to contribute. They need to see how it's preparing itself. That can be very helpful. And lastly, 
government, we can see it with all sorts of situations, including COVID. They have money. And if they don't have money, they can print money. Of course, that's not an unlimited resource. But I think the government has a role to help whoever can come up with strategies, new technologies to improve disease control, eradication. Well, they need to foster this by offering grants to help setting up or having equipment so that they can facilitate controlling diseases like HIPAP AI. So then on that topic of innovation and support for innovation, what right now is new and exciting in the world of poultry health and disease management? Is there anything, whether it's specific to avian influenza or to other diseases, that you're really excited about right now? Yeah, I'm excited about two things right now. Sensors. I just attended a full-day symposium on using sensors on farms and on vehicles, applications on smartphones, beacons being put so that you can establish internal biosecurity with all these, these sensors. The technology is remarkable, all the different things that are happening right now. I could give you several examples where we're setting up right now uh, these sensors so that you have like a chip, for example, in farm boots. And so if you're going to cross a line you should not be crossing, you'll get a real-time alarm basically telling you that, that you've made a mistake. You have a biosecurity breach. And that kind of real-time information, we know that works because there's been work done in hospitals where they looked at increasing biosecurity compliance. And they know that immediate feedback is very important. So we have technologies we're developing. There's a company, for example, that has, uh, instead of having just a regular logbook, if you want to get in, you have like a, a couple of key questions you need to answer using your phone, or they have a, a tablet there, iPad type thing. You key that in, and depending on the information you get in, that door is going to unlock or not. For example, uh, you just arrived from China. You were in a zone where they have an important disease and you arrived uh, just a day before. There's no way to know if you're using the same shoes or stuff like that. Well, you know, depending on the answers, you're going to give to a couple of questions like that. Where are you coming from? Have you been to farms uh, the day before? Stuff like that. Then you can basically control who's coming in or not. And the technology is fairly easy for that. We have uh, companies that have used technologies, putting sensors on trucks so that you have real-time information, putting on virtual fences. So it's a fence you don't see. But if you have the application, you work for the industry and they have that in place, when you cross that virtual fence, you're going to be recorded. So we'll know who's coming in, how much time they spend there, where they're coming from. Uh, we have the coordinates so that we can contact them if there's a need to intervene quickly. All these technologies now exist and are being slowly tested and potentially and put in place in some regions, not everywhere. But that's where the future is, is kind of Egypt-proof type mechanism where, you know, sometimes you're tired and you don't pay attention and you forget something. But if you can have mechanisms that will alert you that you missed something, well, that's great. And that includes a lot of these technologies using phone applications, all these uh, sensors that can be put on equipment, on boots, on the trucks. All of that is, and for trace back and trace forward, that's fantastic 
to go much faster. So that's one thing. In terms of diagnosis, diagnostics of uh, diagnostic ability, we have more and more technologies that allow us to get an answer much quickly, and, and sometimes even on farm directly. It goes far now, and the military has been involved in this. They call that an e-nose. It's basically you can have a sniffer that can actually detect pathogens by filtering air. So that is being developed, has been developed for several years now. And I think that we'll see an application of this kind of technology that will let us know if we have like an outbreak in some place, we could have detectors like that let us know if the pathogen is making its way in the prevailing winds, for example, things like that. So that, that's very uh, interesting. Now, the other thing that we're starting to see is an interest by government entities about the human component of disease control and eradication. There's a recognition that you can have all the technologies doing the diagnostics having the eradication procedures, all the techniques. But at the end of the day, this is a human game. And so we see more and more interest in doing research in sociology, psychology, industrial psychology. Right now in France, there's a a lab in Lyon in France uh, where they actually have a PhD in psychology program going on where they are using the environment that is uh, the farms, the uh, the industry, the lab environments and all this and all the different components around all this. And they're doing research at a level that is on the human being. What can we do to better assist people, get people to apply measures correctly or how to react and all this? So that's also... It's not technology like sensors, but it's the human side of things. And at the end of the day, even if you have sensors everywhere, you know, like you could have like automatic robots. We see a lot of that going on using robots to manage the litter, for example, pick up if we have ammonia levels to elevate it or whatever, uh, reducing the number of people on a farm. And if you reduce traffic on a farm, well, you improve biosecurity technically. But we will never, human beings will never be replaced by robots in that sense. And it's a human game. And so we need to advance. And there's a recognition lately that research needs to be done this way. So that's quite encouraging. Thank you very much, Dr. Viancourt, for chatting with me today and sharing your enthusiasm and your expertise and insights about avian influenza and poultry health management. We'll share some information and resources regarding avian influenza on our website at cas.ca. I should note there is also an excellent webinar posted there for veterinarians and for small flock producers that relates to avian influenza, so be sure to check that resource out as well. Thanks for joining us today on Animal Health Insights. The Animal Health Insights podcast is a production of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. CAS is a division of Animal Health Canada, and it is broad-based support from livestock sectors and government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. 
Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial territorial initiative.